I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and Me Too to the war on civil rights and the global rise of fascism. This is an idea travelogue. It lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. It's 1989. I'm a first-year law professor driving my new car to a colleague's house in a wealthy white neighborhood. As I'm driving, I look up and see the flashing red lights behind me. My heart starts to beat. I am hyperventilating, and I'm surprised. I'm surprised at my own reaction, that my body knows the fear before my mind is able to process it. It's a minor traffic violation. It seems to me everybody is making this violation, but I'm pulled over. I do get a ticket, and I'm pretty upset. I'm upset at my upset. And I think that's a conflict that a lot of us have because it's a natural reaction to become anxious when you encounter a situation that tells you you have a reason to be afraid. And yet as an activist, as a social justice advocate, you really want not to be afraid. The reality though is if what you are protesting, if what you are writing about, if what you are living is real, then first of all, you can't be surprised when it happens to you. And second, you can't be shocked that your body is reacting to the fear because the fear is based on something real. That's a moment that stuck with me for many years. It was a moment that was soon to be followed by the Rodney King beating, a vicious beating that was captured on video. It went viral. And soon after that, the acquittal of the officers who nearly took Rodney King's life. And then after that, there was the civil disturbance that reflected decades of frustration about the fact that everyone who occupies a black body is aware of the reason to be fearful, just as I was 30 years ago. Today, we're going to be talking about the story of Corinne Gaines, a 23-year-old black woman who was killed in her own home at the hands of police in August 2016. It's a story that began with a traffic ticket and ended with a brutal killing. It's a story that you might have heard on the news, but not from the woman who lost her daughter, Rhonda Dormius. Rhonda's been working closely with AAPF and the Say Her Name campaign since 2016. Rhonda is an incredible force of love, justice, resistance, and resilience. And I thank her for her incredible candor, vulnerability, and trust in this conversation. 
Police shot and killed a woman after a long standoff in Randallstown. A five-year-old boy was also shot during the barricade. He is expected to be okay. Now, this all started around nine Monday morning on Sulky Court. Police say three officers went to serve arrest warrants on Corinne Gaines and a man who lived in the apartment. Gaines was wanted for failing to appear on several charges, including disorderly conduct and resisting arrest following a traffic stop. Police say the officers knocked and no one answered the door. Tactical was called in and police say officers tried to negotiate with Gaines. Who's outside? The police. What are they trying to do? They trying to kill us. Well, the traffic stop, which was the basis or the premise for her untimely death, was in March of 2016. Sit right here with mommy. Don't be afraid. Turn this car off. Sir, can you identify yourself? I'm telling you one more time, turn the car off. Sir, oh, can you identify yourself? And so there was a struggle. They, you know, ripped out of the car because actually they, she didn't want them to touch her children. She said, don't touch my children. She knew that her grandmother was on, on her way. Her grandmother lived right up the street from her. And so she was like, you know, don't touch my children. I wasn't actually there to witness it, so I don't want to speculate, but based on what I was told when her grandmother got there is that they literally just snatched her out of the car, like ripped her out of the car. And so, you know, a struggle ensued, a struggle then ensued, and she was taken into custody, she was taken to the hospital. At the time, she was pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. And when they took her to the hospital, they um, did her pregnancy test and her, and her HCG count, which is the hormones that sustains a pregnancy, were okay. So once they released her after a few hours, they took her, the officers took her to a holding pen in Baltimore County, I believe it was in Woodlawn, and they stuck her, stuck her in a isolation cell by herself, which means she's out of view and she's barely, you can barely hear her. For what reason did they give? They didn't like her mouth, well they didn't give a reason, they didn't give a reason, but I'm sure it was because they didn't like her mouth which is a very similar situation that they did to Sandra Bland. What did they do? They isolated her. They put her off by herself. Let me tell you something. That stuff is not by accident. When you mm -hmm. isolate somebody, especially when they're upset or can't figure out why they're being detained, you know, and they're all, you know, it's already the, the emotions are already heightened. You isolate people and it puts them in a vulnerable situation. Not so much that they will hurt themselves, but it can it, it's there to break their spirit, to bring them down a notch, for lack of a better word. She had complained that she had complained that she wasn't feeling well. She they didn't give her any food, any water. She was severely. I still have the labs to prove it. When they rushed her back to the hospital after hours and hours of her begging and crying and pleading. Her HCG count had dropped, which was indicative of her losing the babies. Okay. And so these are these are labs and, and things that are within, uh, I think it was like a 24-hour period that had went from normal to devastating. Like she was showing signs of dehydration when she went back the second time. How? Because she wasn't given any water or food. And Rhonda, you do think that the rest was related to her loss of the children? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, anytime you have a stressor, 
um, that heightens your, your adrenaline and your emotions. You know, your hormones are already going crazy because you're pregnant. Your body is becoming acclimated to that. And then to have something that can reverse that, that can be such a stressor that things will start to break down. Things won't start, you know, things won't function normally. You know, your hormones are not are going to be able to maintain because you got another hormone kicking in. It's overpowering it, you know, mm-hmm. so then it starts a breakdown. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I'm gonna come. I have those documents, those labs. I'm gonna find them because the 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 levels when she was admitted were tremendously higher than the ones when they took her back to the hospital. They realized then she was losing the babies. And so, just to clarify, they are aware that she's pregnant. Yes, they are now aware that her levels uh, of her, her indicators are becoming dangerous. Yes. And they do nothing. And they did nothing. The ambulance attendant called me about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning. She said, listen, don't talk. And I got quiet. She said, I'm, I'm a paramedic. She said, I transferred your daughter. And she said she hasn't had any water or any food, and she's extremely dehydrated. She says, I transferred her earlier, earlier the shift before. And she said, get a lawyer. And she hung up. Soon after that, they actually released her from the hospital. The paperwork that they gave her didn't have any of the information that was pertinent to her court date. They didn't have her paperwork in there, which is why another video came out where she went to the station and actually requested the documents. And the officer at first did not recognize her, and then she gave him her name, and he recognized her, and then went on to say, well, the supervisor that would have that document or be able to access it isn't available. And the reason why this is important is that she failed to appear. Yes. And her failure to appear prompted what? An arrest warrant. And again, this is a failure to appear for a follow-up proceeding for a traffic involving violation. a traffic stop. So, yes. so then what happened when they sent the arrest warrant out for her? So that morning of August 1st, I got a phone call. I got a message, a text message. I didn't even see it at first. I think it was around 8, maybe an 8-ish in the morning that someone was trying to gain entry into her apartment. And she didn't know who it was at first. You know, she didn't know who it was at first. And they even said on the stand that they took and went because they knocked on the door and they heard children. They didn't they decided that the children could be in danger. So they went to the rental office and got the key. So Corinne's perception is, first of all, everybody who needs a key and has a key is in here. So who would be coming in my door with a key? So she went and she sat and waited in the middle of her living room floor with her shotgun. Which she was a legally owned shotgun. And she has a right to do that. Absolutely. Especially if you have not made, a, made an announcement about who is entering your door. Mm-hmm. Again, just because you hear somebody in, a, in an apartment does not mean that you have right to ain't gain access. Like the, in the, during the court proceedings, why couldn't they come back another day? After I was able to speak to her that morning and I was able to have my Andre and my fiance come and take me to the uh, scene. I spoke with an officer after my daughter's uh, boyfriend contacted me. They had taken him into custody. And so he, they didn't see that he had his phone. So he called me and he didn't even say hi. He said, Ma, they're going to kill her. That was the first thing out of his mouth. He said, they're going to kill her. 
And I said, what's going on? And I'm on my way. And so in, mm-hmm. in between me asking him what's going on and him being able to respond, the officer realized he had a phone. So he took the phone and I said, officer, I said, I'm um, the young lady's mother. I'm Corinne's mother. I'm on my, At first I told him, I said, I'm on my way. He said, it's too late for all of that. And I said, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? You're going to just kill my child? Why would they not let you talk to your own daughter? They said that it is a form of finality. That if the person, if they consider the person to be a threat, suicidal or homicidal, that if they allow family members or anybody to reach out to them directly, which means like I talk to her directly, that that's a form of finality. That what that does could that be mean? Way, that they can use that time to say their goodbyes and possibly kill themselves. Or, you so know what they I mean? were like, trying to tell you that in her interests, they didn't want you to talk to her. Yes. They didn't think so, that was so, a good idea. So I think, Rhonda, this is something that many of the other mothers have also experienced. They are at the scene where their daughter's lives are hanging in the balance. This, yes. is, this is your child. Yes. Share with listeners what the experience is of knowing your daughter is in danger and the police are the ones that are keeping you from protecting her well for me it was it was overwhelming it was extremely overwhelming because my daughter and I had a good relationship and I know you know her hearing from me things could have been different but to have them there, keeping me at bay, I wasn't even allowed to go down to the scene where her building was to even let her know that I was there. So I couldn't speak to her verbally on the phone. I couldn't go down to even let her scream out on a bullhorn that I was there. You know, so to to be there and not know, because see, I didn't know, even when she was murdered, I didn't know that she was murdered until about 10 or, 10 or 15 minutes after it had happened. As I'm leaving out the, off the church steps, I see the officer that had been with us all day coming up the uh, pathway. Now, mind you, we didn't hear any ambulances. We didn't. They, they had ambulances on standby, I'm sure. But like, even when everything was going on, once they knew she was hit and all that stuff, there was no commotion. It seemed outside that would have indicated that anything had happened. So when I got down to the officer, I said, "What's going on? Where, where did everybody go?" I said, "Where's my daughter?" And his words to me were, "She gone. She was gone. She's gone." That's how he they said, told you. She's gone. And I remember I still have the scar. I dropped to my knees on that was like a gravel like type of uh, pavement. I dropped to my knees and I I just I I thought I was going to lose my mind because I couldn't believe that this man was telling me that my baby was gone. I really, really couldn't. But then he followed up with that. My grandson was shot as well. (sighs) So now I have to pull myself together and um you know get ready to go to my grandson oh my god and and Rhonda I mean was was there a sense of inevitability in the way that he said it was there any human recognition that he was telling a mother that they had just killed her daughter he said she's gone And that was it. Then he walked away. I think 
Officer Royce Ruby saw her as a problem because during the trial, all of the other officers said that she posed no threat to them. They weren't ready to do that. As a matter of fact, the ambulance attendant is some is known by family members and it was stated that when he got there he heard them having a disagreement asking why did he shoot like as the other officer said, why you shoot why did you shoot because one he even admitted he couldn't see her he shot her through a wall and what is the answer to why he said that he thought she was gonna fire on them because he couldn't see her. Then he said he thought that she was going to hurt Cody and she was making him a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Mm. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Rhonda. He said that the reason why he shot was because he saw her braids and what he thought was the barrel of the gun coming up. Oh, what? His own witness, the witness for the state, for them, they paid about $80,000 for this guy to be there for two weeks. And he said that there was no way that he could see her from where she was hit. She was standing at the counter. She was hit in her back. So how do you hit somebody in the back that's holding a gun towards you? How? And so she was shot in the back? She was shot on the... um. The right, I think it said the, the bullet entered the right medium side of her back and went through both of her lungs and her aorta. And then his own officers on the, on the stand said, when they were asked, what did you see Officer Royce Ruby do next? Then he went and stood over her and engaged her three more times, sent a mass. What? What? That's what was given in the statement in the um testimony at the at the here at the uh trial i'm just to be clear engaged her means shot her. shot her yes after she was down yes that's just murder yes yes and his justification for that was his first his first statement that he put out was that he felt like his uh comrades lives were in danger then somebody must have gotten to him and told him, no, you should have said your life was in danger. Then he said, then he changed it to his life was in danger. And then ultimately at the depositions, he said that he felt that Corinne would, could have killed Cody. After he, even, he had shot her. After he had shot her and shot Cody twice. So while Cody was running, the bullets were ricocheting and hitting the one that hit him in his face, thank God that was a ricochet. But the one that hit him, him in the elbow was a actual actual uh, AR. What is it? What uh, I forget was a. I can't remember what the model of the rifle is, but it tore his whole elbow out. He'll never be able to do push-ups, and he has a uh, his whole elbow has been uh, rebuilt. And how old was Cody at the time? Cody was five. Yeah. Yeah. So, Rhonda, this is, again, so unimaginable for so many mothers. And, and, and at the same time, what does sound imaginable is the desire to punish, not because Corinne represented a threat, but an annoyance. Yes. Who is yes. this black woman? Yes. You know, not to follow our commands. Who yes. is this black woman to be spouting, you know, 
stuff that we don't understand. Who is this black woman to think that she can say no to us? Right. And you know what? That was another thing about Sandra Bland's documentary that really moved me when I heard Geneva say how outspoken and she was going to cuss and she was going to vent and she was going to. That was Corinne. When she felt like she was going to be, if she was being wrong, she would she would unleash. She would say, look, you're not doing this shit to me. Who do you think you are? You know? And so that was a comparison between her and Sandy. Because they mm-hmm. both were activists, you know, they both wanted to let people know how we as African-American people feel about the way we are treated by law enforcement. And she wanted to awaken us to the, the real world. He's seen videos of you shooting people that look like his father and shit. So don't even talk to him. And it's not funny. It's really not funny. The way you're raising your children. It's really not funny. It's really not funny. You know, there were people when Sandy Bland was killed who would say, well, you know, know, she brought it on herself. She gave him attitude. And I'm sure um, some people say the same thing about Corinne. More than some. (laughs) What do you what do you what do you say to those people who say, well, she had acted differently, she'd still be alive? Well, you know. In my opinion, most of those people who have those opinions or have that perspective, they don't they don't they're not even at risk of being remotely as uh, close to what Corinne was dealing with or what Sandy was dealing with, because a lot of them are privileged. You do have some of our own African-Americans that feel like that. But again, they a lot of times aren't in touch with what really is happening around them because they haven't been affected. It doesn't even have to be by death. It could just be by the the encounter. So a lot of people who have been able to avoid the encounter with the police, they don't understand. I don't want them to understand to the to the uh, to the degree that I do, but they need to understand what's going on around them. I have people in my life that are dear to me that when Freddie Gray got killed, living right around the corner from the incident, they didn't realize how corrupt the system was because again they have never had any interactions with them they don't have any family members that had interacted with them like that and they don't pay attention to what's going on around them and I'm wondering too um, since you've been part of the say her name movement dealing with women who are killed by the police thinking about some gender issues that that come up here you know, Philando Castile was killed and he had a gun and people have been very supportive of his right to bear arms and, and not lose his life because of it. Do you think that people have less of a sense about Corinne's right to bear arms and not lose her life because of it because she's a woman? Absolutely. I think that was the number one thing. What is this? What is she doing with a gun anyway? You know, why does she have a gun? She's not a man. She shouldn't have a gun. Um, The whole stigma behind a woman and being powerful and standing up for themselves was demonstrated with the with with Corinne. Because, again, a lot of people were totally opposed to her even standing her ground when she was confronting the officers. You know, some people have an issue with that. No, that's not the way you choose to deal with it. Because you don't know the harassment. You don't know living in the, in, in the hood how the officers will bother you. Or if you look like you don't fit in. 
because it's 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 a reputable neighborhood and I happen to live here. I happen to live here, Trayvon Martin. But because she was a woman, those things didn't matter. It's just the fact that you didn't listen. Who are you not to listen? You weak woman, you weak little woman, because my daughter was tiny. She was tiny, 5'2", 106 pounds soaking wet. She was tiny. Rhonda, I, 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 you know, we, we want to talk about, you know, the lives that should have been and think about what one thing um, that had, if, if on that day it had happened differently, or, or even before that, if, if there's one thing that you could go back into time and change that you think would have changed the outcome and would have placed Corinne right here on this earth right now, what, what do you think that one thing could have been? <sighs> I don't know. Uh, you know, I've asked myself that over and over and over again. I, I really, I thought I had the answers at one time. Like, you know, I could probably say one particular thing. I don't know. Just, I, I don't know. Do you think that if you had been able to talk to her? Oh. Directly that day? Yeah, yeah. I, I believe I believe that could have been possible if I could have I would have gone I even told them I will go in there I said I will sign something releasing the, the department from any responsibility if anything happens to me I said that to them let me go in and I can bring her out what do you imagine you could have or would have said when you went in I don't know I just know she just not wasn't trusting of the police. And mm -hmm. and she trusted you. And she trusted me. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. I know I would have never I would not have told her that you know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's just so hard. It's so hard because I do this all the time and none of mm -hmm. none of the my thoughts can ever come true. So it's hard to I put them in. I put them in position all the time. Different mm -hmm. scenarios. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. it overwhelms me. Me doing the scenarios until I realize that the scenarios don't count now, because she's she's not here. Once again, it seems as though uh, black family bonds, black love. There, there's a sense in which this feels very familiar, and I'm wondering if you had some thoughts about this. I mean, we come from a history in which our familial bonds to one another um, was dismissed, disregarded. We weren't seen as um, being traumatized by being separated from people that we love. We, we weren't seen as having true um, human uh, connections and emotions with one another. I'm wondering whether in the different moments ranging from your initial encounters with the police to the way they told you that they'd killed Corinne to the way that the officer who killed Corinne, um, you know, sort of described uh, her to the way he 
um, continued to to assault her, even though a child was there. Do do you see in this treatment of your family a similar long pattern of utterly disregarding the humane and human connections that Black people have with one another? Well, to answer that, first of all. You have to be considered human for a person to under to to accept that you may have a human connection, and so if you're not looked at as human in the first place, the connection is lost there. They don't believe that we have any connection or commitment to one another to the point where we would be traumatized with the loss or traumatized with the separation. That's not. I don't even think they take those things into consideration because I don't believe. Folks think that we're human, that we have that type of ability to have a bond. You know, they've been ripping us apart from one another all these years. I guess they think we should be used to it. You know, it was it was never they don't they don't feel like it was ever established from my perspective. If that's something that they're used to seeing. And at one point it was acceptable because that we had no choice but to scream and cry because our children were being snatched from us or our husbands were being sold or whatever the case. We weren't considered human then with a connection. So I don't think we I don't think we've ever been really except amongst us and a a few others. We have never been considered human enough to have that kind of connection that breaks us down. We've been saying, Rhonda, that the 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 killing of your daughters is just the first loss, the first killing, the first erasure. And then there's a second one that comes after that. Can you describe then what it's like for yourself and and some of the other mothers? Absolutely. So, you know, fortunately, I, I was retired. I, you know, didn't have to work, but I was a registered nurse. If I had to if I had to work now. With the way my mind is set up. I wouldn't want me being in control of anybody's life right now. I wouldn't want that because the mental depression is is profound. A lot of the mothers who were working were no longer able to work because physically they and mentally they could not focus or function well enough to maintain employment. Gina Bass, she's working now, but it took her years after India Kaga was murdered by Virginia Beach police with her grandson in the car, struggled. I watched her struggle. She watched me struggle. We watched each other and other mothers struggle with trying to just get a grasp on what was considered a life at one time. You know, I had things that I enjoyed before my daughter died. I've no longer find joy in them. I'm trying to figure out how to get back to me. We lose ourselves. Our families lose parts of themselves. I deal with my children and their depression. I have two daughters left and a son. They deal I deal with this all the time. People call me, family members. They don't sometimes they don't want to call me because they're so in grief. They don't want to bring me down, but they miss her. They miss her presence. They miss her light. And she had those things, but people will never know it because they take making a blanket judgment because of what media puts out there. You don't know what she meant to us. So talk to us about the meaning of coming together as mothers and sisters of women who've been killed by the police. 
one of the things that I remember hearing being shared among you all is how surprised some of the mothers are to find out that they're not alone, that actually women do get killed by the police because they don't see it reported. There's not a recognition that it happens for the longest time. Only men's names were mentioned. They gave then mothers the sense that not only did it just not happen to women, their daughters must have been exceptional um, in in some way that made them uh, stand out as targets of the police. So what 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 is that experience like when you are able to come together with other mothers who are experiencing the same tragedy? We didn't even know most of us existed. You, we didn't know. Tanisha Anderson at the time, I didn't know who Tanisha Anderson was. Cassandra's child. I didn't know who she was. And so when you meet other people who have walked the walk with you and they know your pain and you get together and you don't have to open your mouth, you can look at each other. You can just you 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 just can sense the pain that each each of one of us have felt in our experiences. That's the beauty of AAPF because they you, you guys bring us together so we can have some familiarity with each other. We don't have to question each other about how we feel because we each know how each other feel. You you guys allow us to come together, congregate, laugh, cry, whatever we need to do, but we're our own what what can I say? We're our own village. We we like we're a separate entity and that's the way it feels. It's like we're a special group. Because again, when the men are killed, the men are uplifted. You hear about these men. You know their lives. You know their families because they're gonna it's gonna be placed in front of you. But with our daughters, we have to make sure that we uplift our daughters and we do it collectively because there's strength in numbers and that's what AAPF does for us. So it's I mean just being able to be with the mothers, like I said, who I didn't even knew existed is a powerful, powerful thing for me because I know that when I'm with them, I can I can be myself. If I want to cry and, and, and snot, it's been times that I have been so broken and I'll be going through the, through the supermarket crying, snotting, and people looking at me like I'm crazy. If it was a, it was a supermarket filled with us, they would just have to, they would just come and hold me. They wouldn't ask any questions because they know. Even though I don't expect people who really don't know to know, but what I'm saying is being around people who know makes the load a lot lighter to bear. It does. In this episode, Rhonda spoke about two levels of loss. First, the death itself. And then the second level, the erasure of this tragedy. But there's a third level of loss, the loss of Corinne's character and that of her family in the aftermath of their successful wrongful death suit. Critics have said that the family is simply seeking attention in suing the police department. What she tells us is that even after a successful judgment is won, even after they're proven right in the court of law, 
Winning that case doesn't mean that they win in the court of public opinion. What sticks out in my memory is how Rhonda learned about the fact that the officers had killed her daughter while she was standing outside waiting to talk to her. I can't, I just couldn't imagine. I just couldn't imagine being in her shoes. And at the same time, I felt like I was standing there with her when she talked about dropping to her knees when they told her her daughter was gone. There were so many things that I did not fully know or didn't totally comprehend. The fact that the police were responsible for Corinne's loss of her twins and the fact that that's just not part of the way that this story is is told. This is a woman who, because of a minor traffic violation, first lost her twins and then lost her life. It's just hard to wrap your head around that tragedy. The other feeling I had listening to Rhonda is just how incredibly courageous she is to share this story with all of us, to open up her heart every time she tells this story. And she does it both in the memory of Corinne and also to make sure that we understand what this loss means and what we have to do in order to make sure that as they say, the mothers of Say Her Name, that no other woman ever has to join this sorority of sorrow. It's always been the case that to challenge social injustice means that you're putting yourself in a situation in which you might experience violence, other kinds of harms. It's easier, people might think, to just sit it out and not protest, not make your voice heard. But if during Jim Crow, people had just decided to go along with the program, if during the time when black people couldn't vote, they decided to just give up all aspirations to exercising political power, if during the time when we weren't able to do or travel um, anywhere we wanted to, people just accommodated their desires to what was possible, our lives would be completely different today. It would be lesser today than what they are. So we need to take that understanding about how resistance in the past brought us to this moment and think about what we have to do today in order to create a tomorrow where there are no Corinne Gaines, where there are no Tanisha Andersons, where all of what we've talked about today will be ancient history. The only way that happens is if we reject the idea that the only thing we can do is be safe by not protesting. We have to put our bodies where our hopes and aspirations are. We want to hear from you. Email us at intersectionalitymatters at aapf.org and tell us your story. Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find us at aapf.org or at AA Policy Forum on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere podcasts are available. 
Intersectionality Matters is recorded and produced by Julia Sharp Levine. Editing by Julia Sharp Levine and Alex Shine, with consulting help from Thea Schaliner. Additional support provided by Janine Jackson, Naima Hakim, Jira Asim, Kevin Minofu, and Madeline Cameron Waterworth. Special thanks to Stacia Brown and Rebecca Sheckman for recording today's episode, and to Rhonda Dormius for allowing us to interview her. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.